text is Haggai 2, verses 20 through 23. So it's the last segment of Haggai. And if you're in a pew Bible in the front, it's page 791. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai. On the 24th day of the month, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother." On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we read your word and we see you've spoken saying that you will shake the earth again. And you've spoken to Zerubbabel, your servant, saying that you make him like a signet ring and you've chosen him. I pray that you'd give us wisdom to understand this text. I pray that you'd give us confidence to rejoice in what you are doing and what you have done in history. Pray that you would open our eyes to see the wondrous things that are in your word, that we might delight in what you've done, delight in your giving of your son, and delight that he is king. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the other night, um, the kids went to bed early for once. And Vanessa was resting and she wasn't feeling well. So as I was uh, doing other things, I turned on ESPN's 30 for 30 documentary on the 1998 home run record chase called Long Gone Summer, which is about the chase for the home run record between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. So as a kid... Me growing up in a suburb of Chicago, this was a big deal for me. I remember the season pretty well. Um, it was a season probably that I can say when I became a baseball fan. Um, I remember on nights when I would go to sleep before the game was over, I would wake up and ask my dad, did Sammy Sosa hit another home run? And he'd either say yes or no. Um, we had, and maybe even still have somewhere, newspaper clippings of stories on Sosa hitting runs in the 50s and 60s. But as exciting for me as this was as a kid, in watching this documentary, there was a lot of history behind this that I didn't know. I had no idea of any of this history as a kid, but as an adult, I hear this history and it helps me to realize and learn quite a bit about what was there. 
And so the 30 for 30 explains how McGuire had pretty few hot seasons in the early 90s, um, late 80s. But then he also had a few bad seasons and explains how he got traded to St. Louis from the athletics, but he wasn't expected to stay. And at some point, they were expecting the chase to be between Ken Griffey Jr. and Mark McGuire rather than between Sammy Sosa. But in the background of all of this, they then have to go on to explain and cover the Babe Ruth record, as well as they have to cover the drama behind Roger Maris's breaking of Babe Ruth's record in 1961. I also know very well that some of you likely remember the Roger Maris record probably more clearly than the 1998 record, since that was when some of you were young adults or teenagers or small children. Um, and yet, during that season in 1998, Sammy Sosa hits 66 home runs, and Mark McGuire goes on to hit 71 home runs. Then a few years later, Barry Bonds hits 73, and then in 2022, Aaron Judge and the New York Yankees hits 62 home runs, but he does it without the use of performance-enhancing drugs, so he doesn't have an asterisk next to his record. And I, yet I know that for some of you, sports illustrations can cause your eyes to roll back and immediately tune out. But I mention all of this to show that understanding the history helps to understand the event itself. Understanding the history of baseball, understanding Babe Ruth's record, understanding Roger Maris's record, understanding the steroid scandal that was massive in the late 90s helps to understand and really put to place the events of this documentary. And it's not that different with our text today. And yet in Psalm 78, that long psalm that I read a few moments ago, we there get much of the history of Israel that helps us to fill out and understand what is going on with these four verses that we'll be looking at this morning. And in this... text this morning, we'll have to go back and look at some history. And there's even been quite a bit of history that we've looked at in the 28 verses that we've looked at prior to this, being reminded that Haggai is a short book, and yet there's a lot behind it. There's the destruction of the first temple, then there's coming to rebuilding the second temple. There's the promises of David, and yet there's also a very significant curse that was pronounced that we'll look at today as well. And so this morning, we'll look at the last four verses of Haggai. This is, the final four, or this is the final of four sermons that the Lord has spoken to the prophet Haggai. This final sermon comes on the same day as the previous one that we looked at last week. And it's this 24th day of the ninth month, which as I mentioned, compared to the other dates that are referenced in Haggai, this is the only one that doesn't have some sort of significance with the calendar, but this is the one that's mentioned the most. And so for our purposes, it corresponds to December 18th, 520 BC. And yet there's something different about this message compared to the previous ones, and that is the audience. In the first three sermons, Haggai was told to speak to, excuse me, in the first two sermons, Haggai was told to speak to Zerubbabel, the governor, Joshua, the high priest, and then to all the people. 
yet there's a bit of an issue there. In the first sermon, he's told specifically, speak to Zerubbabel, speak to the high priest. And then it expands out to the rest of the people later on in that sermon. In the second sermon, it's those two and then all the people for the whole part of it. In the third, it's a little different as it's a question for the priests, but it's clear that this sermon has expanded the entirety of the people as well. And then here in this final sermon, the Lord speaks only to Zerubbabel. So we're going to look at this final sermon in three parts. First, we'll look back at a bit more into the history of it. And so for the sake of alliteration and because I'm trying to be a good Baptist preacher, we'll call it the story. And the second then, the shaking. And then finally, the signet ring. So for the story... Even though Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel is mentioned five times in the book of Haggai, I've not previously addressed who he is, or if I have, it's been in short. So as we know and as we see in the text, he's the governor of Judah. He's also mentioned as the son of Shealtiel. And yet his name, Zerubbabel, means descendant of Babel, which makes sense as they, he's born during the Babylonian captivity. However, there's a bit more to who he is than that. The more significant part of who he is goes back another generation. So the son of Shealtiel is, is what we know about him, but we then have to ask the question, who's Shealtiel? Or more, maybe more appropriately, who is Shealtiel the son of? Which is what we read in 1 Chronicles 3.17. And the sons of Jeconiah, the captive, Shealtiel, his son. So, tells us that he is the son of Jeconiah, but who's Jeconiah? And well, Jeconiah's got three different names in the Old Testament, which makes things a little confusing. Jeconiah, or Coniah, as then as well as Jehoiakim. He is the last king of Judah prior to the deportation. So he is the final king before the Babylonian captivity. He was king for a grand total of three months. And as we learn from 2 Kings 24, 8 and 9, he was 18 years old when he became king. He reigned for three months. And then in verse 9, that's not it. Uh, in verse 9 we read, and he, what, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. So, three months he's king. And he says that he does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. So three months into his reign, Nebuchadnezzar takes over. And consider how evil you have to be to in three months be removed from the throne and compared to the evil that his father had done. And to look back at the baseball illustration, this is sort of like the steroid scandal that followed the record-breaking of the ancient Near East. As we see, the sin is important to the story overall. Jeconiah gets thrown in prison and his uncle Zedekiah becomes king. But prior to all of this, Jer er, Jeconiah is told something very important to our purposes in Jeremiah 22, verse 30. Thus says the Lord, write this man, Jeconiah, down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. In short, he will not have a kingly successor. The dynasty ends with Jeconiah. 
So at the start of this sermon from Haggai, it's likely the case that Zerubbabel and anyone else who would hear this or read it would think, well, the temple's rebuilt. It's not as nice as we'd like it, but it's rebuilt. And yet, in addition to that, it's God has promised that he would be with us and that we would, he would do something remarkable with the temple. And he has promised to bless us which is all great, and that's much of what is caught up to this point in Haggai. But there's still something that's not right. Because the question would then be, what about the promise to David? What about 2 Samuel 7? Where David is promised in 2 Samuel 7 in verses 13 and verses 16 that his throne will be established forever. David is promised a dynasty but Jeconiah is promised not to have an offspring on the throne. So the background for this text this morning, we've got the Davidic covenant now standing at the odds, or standing at odds with the curse that's pronounced on Jeconiah. And thus the question for us becomes, as well as for Zerubbabel and the people, is how will God remain faithful to his promise to David when he has told Jeconiah that he will be punished for his wickedness. And seemingly, the text brings us at attention. Will God be faithful to his promise to David, or will he be faithful to the curse he's pronounced on Jeconiah? Well, the answer is both, but we'll get there. And that question is at least partially answered in our text for today. And then as we look at the text, as we look at verse 21 we see the shaking where in the final of Haggai's sermons, which is given the same as the previous one, there's similar language to an earlier message. And the message that's given in the seventh month on the 21st day of the month, which as I mentioned was that last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. In verse 6, we see very similar language where the Lord is telling the people, that he will shake the earth. And thus again, that language is used in verse 21, where the Lord says, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. And so we've got this reference to a cataclysmic event or a event referring to destruction and to the Lord's conquering of nations. And if you recall a few weeks back, I made the connection between the earth shaking at Jesus' death and the earth shaking at Jesus' resurrection. And the statement that comes in Hebrews 12 concerning the inevitable shaking of the earth at the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And thus, this latter glory of the temple is connected to the overthrowing of kingdoms. And then as we look at verse 22... There's an appropriate degree to which this should portray a bit of fear or maybe even some, it should be a little unsettling. And it's interesting, as I was looking through the various texts, or the various translations portraying this text, I found it interesting the way that it was rendered in the King James Version, or at least the software that I was using to show it as I didn't find it elsewhere, but... Each different statement was set by a new paragraph in the way that this is read. So in verse 22, 
It was rendered, I will shake the heavens and the earth. The new paragraph. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I will destroy, or I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms and nations. I will overthrow the chariots and the riders. Note the first person there and the way that it was rendered in that translation. I would have put it up there, but I couldn't get it to maintain the same format. But it is God actively showing what he is doing. The Lord of hosts is not only actively declaring war here, but he is also actively proclaiming his own victory. And this is by no means foreign or isolated to this text. As we've been studying in the Pentateuch in Sunday school, we've seen that God is a warrior and that's declared, proclaimed by Moses as they leave Egypt in Exodus 15. And it's in the conquest of Canaan, the Lord declares that he is fighting on behalf of the people and that he will be victorious. Then also as we look at Job 12, and Job likely being one of the first books of the Old Testament to be written, Job writes, he makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. Now, we should be very cautious not to assume that nations that pride themselves on immoralities are nations that God is going to protect. As God says that he is going to destroy nations, we should not by any means assume that a nation would be spared if they are a nation that is wicked and forsaken him. And yet there are many religions that have a doctrine of holy war that will find themselves trampled underfoot on the day of wrath. And in verse 22, consider how this would sound to Zerubbabel. Consider how this would sound to the people that Zerubbabel is governing. They are under the reign of another nation. They're back in the land. They had the temple, but they didn't have their own kingdom. They're under Persian rule. And they're reminded of that every time they read the date in this book. As we see the reference in the beginning of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, and at the beginning of that third sermon in verse 10, in the second year of Darius the king. Darius isn't their king. Darius is the king of Persia because... He's conquered them. He is their king. But he's not the king they want or they think they're supposed to have. But the king they were supposed to have wasn't supposed to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And the interesting thing about this phrase is when the king does evil in the sight of the Lord, it also means that's what the people were doing as well. It's the idea of as the king goes, so goes the people. And yet, while I want to be quick not to jump to take this text out of its context and put it in our day-to-day, there's also a worthwhile question here of how does this sound to us in America today? How does it sound to us when we read that God is going to shake the heavens and the earth to overthrow the, king, the throne of kingdoms and that he is about to destroy the heavens or the, the strength of the kingdoms and the nations and to overthrow the chariots and their riders? And that we can see at various points in history that this is indeed the case. As we see great earthquakes at the death of Jesus, great earthquake at the resurrection of Jesus, and even records of there being a great earthquake in 70 AD when that second temple comes down as well. 
But when we read that God will shake the heavens and the earth, overthrow the kingdoms, destroy the strength of the kingdoms and nations, and overthrow the chariot and rider, there's a sense in which we should be at least a little bit unsettled, knowing that elsewhere in the prophets and Joel... Joel writes that the day of the Lord is great. Who can endure it? And we shouldn't be unsettled by any means in thinking that what God is going to do is wrong. It's not. But we should be unsettled understanding that we deserve to be part of that trampling and that destruction. Because God will gloriously triumph over his enemies and those who sin, those who transgress against his law are his enemies. Yet it will be to God's glory that he judges sinners and that he executes his wrath on sinners. But then in verse 23, we read a phrase, on that day. It's language that's used commonly in prophecy, specifically in prophecy concerning the second coming of Christ. On that day is often used in referring to the day of the Lord, the day when the Lord will pour out judgment. And yet, the language here connects us to verse 21 as well as into verse 6. With It connects us to that shaking of all things. This would demonstrate that we can conclude that Zerubbabel did not see the remainder of this text come to pass in his day. And as we look at the text, we'll see that pretty clearly as well. But whether Zerubbabel expected this or not, I can't say. But that language does lead us to think that it's going to come at a later point. But yet still, we need to discuss what is being promised to Zerubbabel. And one of the most significant parts of this prophecy that is spoken to Zerubbabel is being told that he will be made like a signet ring. And so... The question then would become, well, what is a signet ring? And it's, it's a mark of royalty or a mark of authority. The function of the signet ring is that it was a seal. In this case, it had become a ring they would wear. We see signets elsewhere in the Old Testament. One example is in the instance with Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38, which I will speak of vaguely. Um, Judah pledges his signet and his cord and his staff to Tamar for her services. Thus, at the end of this narrative where Judas seeks to accuse her of wrongdoing, Tamar pulls this out and says, oh, isn't this your signet? And she exposes and implicates Judah for his wickedness. And if you don't, if you're not familiar with the text, you can go read that, but I'm being vague because it's there are children in the room. I'll put it that way. In another instance, we see of a signet ring in Genesis is when Pharaoh gives Joseph his signet ring. And Pharaoh gives Joseph the ring, giving him authority and demonstrating that what Pharaoh's do, or sorry, what Joseph is doing, he's speaking as an emissary on behalf of Joseph. Or sorry, on behalf of Pharaoh. And thus this signet ring had a unique insignia or icon or maybe a letter. Um, that a royal person would use to demonstrate that an edict or a law or a letter came from them. This signet or this um, logo, in a sense, would 
be unique to them and it would demonstrate this has weight, this has authority, this comes from the Pharaoh, this comes from Joseph, this comes from Judah. Yet in our world that is well-versed in forgery and counterfeiting, this might seem a bit unreliable, but we still have plenty of things like this, something like a signature or a password or a PIN number or even maybe an IP address for a computer. This idea isn't entirely foreign. And yet similar to those things, there is a sense of ownership connected to them. You don't have an IP address if you don't have a computer. And similarly, if one didn't have a signet ring, they generally didn't have authority. Or if they had a signet ring and didn't have any sort of authority, it didn't mean anything. But the signet ring has another significant Old Testament reference that is historically connected to this text. And it's connected to that curse with Jeconiah that I referenced earlier. A few verses before the, the curse that's pronounced upon Jeconiah, that none of his descendants will sit upon the throne, the Lord says this to the, him. As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. And reminder that Coniah and that Jeconiah is the same as Jehoiakim with an N, but Jehoiakim is his father. It's very confusing. But the curse that is pronounced here is the same thing as what we read in verse 30. And him saying that he would take the signet ring and cast him off is saying, I will remove you from being king and your children will not pick up the throne. And yet it's the same language that here is being spoken to Zerubbabel. Jeconiah is being told that his crown is going to be removed and cast off. But then Zerubbabel here is being told that I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So Jeconiah is told, if you were the signet ring on my hand, I would cast you off. But Zerubbabel, his grandson, is told, I will make you like a signet ring. You are my chosen servant. So this does two things. It confirms Zerubbabel's role as governor over Judah, but it also explains why well, this curse explains why Zerubbabel is governor and why Zerubbabel is never king. But also it explains that God has not ab abandoned his promise to David. He is going to be faithful to his promise that a descendant of David will remain on the throne and reign eternally. But Zerubbabel never becomes king. So does Haggai's prophecy fail? If he's going to be like a signet ring, he's going to be made into a signet ring, would that not imply that maybe he would be king? Well, the prophecy is not that he would become king, <clears throat> but rather that he bears the stamp or seal of the Lord. Through Zerubbabel, the Lord of hosts is going to do something remarkable. And, in, and we see this in two places in the New Testament. 
And this is where we return to a little bit more of history. In the genealogies of Jesus, in Luke 3, 27, and in Matthew 1, 12, we come across Zerubbabel's name. Zerubbabel here in this text is described as my servant. And he is told that God has chosen him in verse 23. And yet this language is not unique to the book of Haggai, as it's also used in Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. But interestingly, Matthew quotes this passage in Matthew 12. He takes this language of Isaiah 42 and says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will have hope. So Isaiah often uses the language of servant in his prophecies about the Messiah. We see this in Isaiah 53. As we think of this language of the suffering servant psalms that are all throughout Isaiah, this language of chosen servant is what Isaiah is using to point to the Messiah, to point to the Christ. And thus, as we see this language of chosen servant, as it's applied to Zerubbabel, it leads us to then anticipate that this promise that's made to Zerubbabel will also, and later, and in a greater sense, be, prepared, be fulfilled and perfected in Christ Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, we regularly see the author of Hebrews taking Moses or Aaron or the Levitical priesthood or Melchizedek and showing that Jesus is better than this person. And yet I think we can see very clearly that Jesus is better than Zerubbabel. That Zerubbabel builds a second temple, but Jesus builds his people into a better temple. We see this in 1 Corinthians 3. That Zerubbabel would be governor, the signet ring, who would be next in line to be king. He should be the king, but there's no kingdom because his grandpa messed it up. If we're to return to the baseball illustration again, and think of those who broke records using performance-enhancing drugs and that asterisk next to their name, there's a sense in which Zerubbabel is almost like a king with an asterisk. But Jesus isn't a king with an asterisk. Jesus is king, no qualifier. And we see this in Revelation all throughout the book of Revelation. Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6. Revelation 17, verse 14. Revelation 19, Verse 16. But then also in 1 Timothy 6, 13 and 15. The New Testament over and over again demonstrates that Jesus is king. And on the cross, Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man, canceled the record of our debt by nailing it to a cross. We read this in Colossians 2, verse 14. And our redemption is caught up in our faith in Jesus. And the confession that Jesus is Lord. And alongside that, he is eagerly awaiting his second, or we are eagerly awaiting his second coming. 
where he will shake the earth once more. And yet in the first following that, in, second, in Colossians 2.14, we read in Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus is conquering. In Psalm 110, uh, a psalm that we looked at quite a bit last year, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this is, this psalm, Psalm 110, is the most frequently quoted text in the New Testament from the Old Testament. It's the basis for much of the book of Hebrews, and also Jesus himself references it about himself. In the text where he says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, Jesus applies that to himself. And Jesus is making his enemies into a footstool. The gospel is advancing and the king will be victorious. It's easy to have a bleak or pessimistic outlook of the world. But be reminded that Christianity started with 13 guys in a room. And now it's all over the world. And it's, it's Sunday where churches all over the world are proclaiming the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. In Revelation 17, 14, we read, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called his chosen and faithful. And it's remarkable how that language brings us back to Haggai. Whereas we look at verses 21 and 22, we see the Lord says that he is going to conquer. In Revelation, we see that Jesus is going to conquer. And that those who are with him are his chosen and faithful. And that same language then, thus that is applied to Zerubbabel and applied to others, many others. It's applied to Israel in Deuteronomy. It's applied to Abraham in Genesis and Isaac and Jacob. That same language is applied to all those who have faith in Christ Jesus, chosen and faithful. And when the king comes and his kingdom is fully realized, this kingdom will not be shaken. God will shake the heavens and the earth, but look forward to the kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is the language of Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's not a nation or kingdom that any of us know now. But it's a kingdom that we look forward to as the kingdom of Christ has no threat. And though baseball records are broken, the kingdom of Jesus will never be surpassed. And yet, it's an election year, isn't it? Which means that a lot of preachers will be shoehorning political posts or points into texts and sermons. Some of them, they'll be right, and some of them will be wrong. And I want to be clear. My political and, and my political and eschatological perspective is this. Jesus is king, and he is putting all enemies under his footstool. A lot of people will argue that, that politics will, should never enter the pulpit, and there's a certain case to which I can agree with that. But... The statement that Jesus is king is a political statement. Jesus is Lord is a political statement since the first century. 
Caesar didn't like that statement very much. Caesar wanted to be Lord. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king is a political statement. And thus, the Bible, while a religious text, while a text given to us by God, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, has political ramifications and statements to it. But we should never merely reduce it to that. Yet how we vote, how we live, how we worship, how we work, how we parent, all of these things are influenced by the declaration that Jesus is king. Unless you reject that Jesus is king, then it doesn't. But that still governs how you parent, how you work, how you live, what you do. And yet for the Christian, the confession that Jesus is king should not be merely an esoteric confession that changes nothing about our lives. But yet regardless of where you sit in terms of eschatology, regardless of whether you think or where you think the millennial reign of Christ begins or ends, whether the 10,000 years are literal or whether they're symbolic, we must all agree and joyfully agree and celebrate where we agree, not fight where we disagree. We must all agree and rejoice that the king is reigning and risen and he is going to conquer and that ought to give us wonderful hope. Unless you're outside of that, then your response is to either repent and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and King, or you will be among the enemies that are placed under his footstool. As I mentioned earlier, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your text. We thank you that we are shown what you are going to do in history, what you have done in history, and that it's all coming to the glorification of your Son as he returns as the risen, reigning, triumphant King, and he will put your enemies under his footstool. I pray that we look to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, with joy, and that the confession that Jesus is King shapes the way that we live every aspect of our lives and that we would have the boldness to make that declaration to others, to show them the good things that Jesus is doing and has done, that in his cross we can rejoice that our sins are forgiven. I pray that we have boldness to proclaim that wonderful, beautiful message to others. We pray for the salvation of our loved ones, for those that each of us are thinking of now that reject this message or do not know this message, that we pray we would have the opportunities to proclaim this beautiful message to them, that Christ is risen. He has conquered death. And pray that we would love you and love him with our lives and see many come to faith in Jesus. Pray that we would support our missionaries. As we have heard from Ben Joseph a few weeks ago, pray that we would support him and care for him, that his ministry would continue. And as we look forward to Bob Edmondson coming next week, 
We pray for his safe travels to get here, but also pray that his ministry would continue as he trains pastors who will go out and declare the wonderful message of Christ Jesus. And it's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.